Welcome to the reading of the Lexington Herald Leader. Today is Tuesday, July 18th, 2023, and your reader is Cindy Fraser with Bill Sally at the Master Controls. As a reminder, Radio I is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Now, from our studios located in the Northside branch of the Lexington Public Library, please join me for this live reading of the Lexington Herald-Leader, which is donated to Radio I by the publishers. Let's first read the weather, starting with the WKYT 5-day forecast. Today, high 86, low 68. A thunderstorm around. Real field temperature, 91. UV index, 9. Wednesday, high 83, low 68. A thunderstorm or two. Real field temperature, 87. UV index, 4. Thursday, high 88, low 69. Humid with a thunderstorm. Real field temperature, 94. UV index, 5. Friday, high 85, low 63. Hazy sunshine. Real field temperature, 87. UV index, 10. Saturday, high 83, low 62. Hazy sun. Real field temperature, 88. UV index, 11. The Almanac for Lexington for Sunday. Temperature, high 86, low 69. Normal high, 87. Normal low, 67. Last year's high was 93. Last year's low, 70. The record high was 100 degrees in 1980. The record low, 50 in 1945. Precipitation for Sunday, 0. Month to date, 2.86 inches. Normal month to date, 2.58 inches. Year to date, 28.96 inches. Normal year to date, 28.94 inches. Last year to date, 28.7 inches. Record for the date, 1.46 inches in 1992. Sun and moon cycles. Sunrise, 6.30 a.m. Sunset, 8.59 p.m. Moonrise, 6.59 a.m. Moonset, 10.04 p.m. The first, the first quarter of the moon will be July 25th. The full moon, August 1st. The last quarter, August 8th. And the new moon will be August 16th. The pollen count, as of June 22nd, from the National Allergy Bureau. Pollen was high with the main offender, grasses. Weather trivia. What does an infrared satellite picture show? Answer. Different shadings correspond to different cloud temperatures. Now let's read the front page headlines from today's edition. Our first headline is Harrodsburg celebrates life of football coach Elvis Johnson. Next, researchers search for missing children in Pennsylvania flash flood. And our final headline from today's front page is Russia halts deal that allowed Ukraine to export grain. So let's turn to our first story. 
Our first article, Harrodsburg Celebrates Life of Football Coach Alvis Johnson by Jared Peck. From Harrodsburg. As high school football teams across the state lit up their stadiums in honor of legendary Harrodsburg high school football coach Alvis Johnson on Sunday night, the field that bears his name held a celebration of his life and legacy. Johnson, a highly respected coach, educator, and administrator who led the pioneers of Hogtown for 23 seasons, died Saturday at the age of 77. Mercer County's Alvis Johnson Field, Woodford County's Community Stadium, and many more turned on their lights for 23 minutes Sunday, one minute for each of Johnson's seasons with the Pioneers, also affectionately known as the Hogs. While Harrodsburg High School is no more since its 2006 merger with Mercer County, the Titans play their home games on the old Harrodsburg Field. Scores of former players and students joined some of Johnson's family and friends to share stories of Johnson's love and leadership. The microphone passed from one to another across the grandstand as tales, both large and small, brought forth laughter and tears. I'm going to speak on behalf of a lot of my teammates that are standing right over here. Man, we loved Coach Johnson, said Mercer County head football coach Craig Yeast, who starred for both Harrodsburg and the University of Kentucky during his playing days in the 1990s. Without Coach Johnson and Mrs. Johnson, there is absolutely no way that I could stand here today and be back in this town and speak to you about how much I love that man and how much he's done for me. Rosetta Johnson, Coach Johnson's wife of 49 years, who moved with him to Harrodsburg shortly after they were married, expressed her appreciation for those memories and the community's support, especially in the last several months as her husband's health worsened. It's an honor. You know Alvis loved Harrodsburg, Rosetta Johnson said. When you're going through it, you really don't think about how it's going to be. But when it culminates and you hear all of that, it makes you feel good. You feel very proud, and you just thank God that you made some decisions that rewarded other people. Hard work will always pay off. A Hopkinsville native and Christian County alumnus, Johnson played college football at Western Kentucky University before returning home to begin his teaching and coaching career at his alma mater. The son of a Western Kentucky sharecropper, Johnson spoke of the importance of hard work and an education for KentuckyTeacher.org article in 2020. My dad taught me a long time ago that hard work will always pay off for you. He worked very hard, and he instilled in me the drive to always try to work and be competitive in whatever area you're in, Johnson said, noting with a laugh that farming also taught him something else. It taught me to go to college. Johnson got his bachelor's degree in education from WKU and later earned his master's in history from Eastern Kentucky University. He told the Harrodsburg Herald in 2020 that he initially wasn't interested in a job offer from Harrodsburg High, but the persistence of the superintendent and the chance to be head coach for both football and track, as well as the school's athletic director, changed his mind. He accepted the job in 1975 and taught U.S. history, world history, law, and justice and geography. 
Harrisburg went 11-2 in Johnson's first football season, had 10 or more wins in eight seasons, and had only three losing records over his 23-year span. Johnson compiled a career record of 194 and 77. He led the Class A Pioneers to 12 district titles, seven region titles, and three state runner-up finishes, 1988, 1996, and 1997. Meanwhile, his track and field teams won five state team titles and more than 50 individual state championships. The tradition we built, everybody wanted to be a part of it, Johnson told the Harrisburg Herald. The athletes wanted to be part of the football tradition. The cheerleaders wanted to cheer because of the tradition in Harrodsburg. Everybody, from the time they were small playing peewee, their goal was to come up and play for Harrodsburg. Johnson was the first black president of the National Federation of High School Athletics Boards of Directors and also served on the Kentucky High School Athletic Association Board of Control, where he had stints as president and vice president. In 1977, he was named a National Track Coach of the Year. In 1992, he was inducted into the Kentucky Track and Cross Country Coaches Association Hall of Fame. In 1996, he was recognized with the Disney's American Teacher Award. That was the same year he and both of his sons received first-team All-State honors from the Associated Press. Sons Derek and Dennis Johnson were part of Harrodsburg's huge run of success in the 1990s, and both went on to play at the University of Kentucky, with the younger Dennis coming in as one of the Cats' highest-rated recruits ever after earning Sports Illustrated National High School Player of the Year honors in 1997. Dennis went on to a brief NFL career. Upon Dennis's graduation from Harrodsburg, Alvis Johnson retired from coaching and joined his sons at UK as an assistant athletic director in 1998, a position he held for eight years. Alvis Johnson was inducted into the Daher's Kentucky High School Athletic Association Hall of Fame in 2004. An indefatigable spirit. In more recent years, the elder Johnson ran a transportation company and could be seen on the football sidelines at Woodford County High School, where Dennis followed in his father's footsteps as both a head football coach and athletic director, and Derek helps out as an assistant coach. The Yellow Jackets have developed into one of Class 5A's best teams. And Alphys Johnson also remained involved in education, serving as an at-large board member of the Kentucky Board of Education for a two-year term that ended in 2022. Alphys Johnson's legacy will be the positive impact he had on thousands of Kentucky high school kids, thanks to his generous heart and indefatigable spirit, longtime Herald Leader High School sports writer Mike Field said. I saw him at the Sweet 16 a few months ago. He was watching his grandson Jasper star for Woodford County. Alvis wasn't in the best of health, but his eyes sparkled with pride. Jasper Johnson, son of Dennis, ranks as one of the most highly sought-after high school junior basketball recruits in the nation. Jasper helped Woodford County reach the boys' Sweet 16 state basketball semifinals last season. Having served as both a deacon and the chairman of deacons at Centennial Baptist Church of Harrodsburg, Johnson often referred to his faith in articles over the years. Our number one priority has to be the Lord, Alvis told the Herald Leader amid the height of his football team's success in 1996. He's the reason why we are what we are, 
why our family has been blessed in so many ways. We give him all the credit. One of his former players, Mercer County Athletic Director Donald Smith, also became Johnson's pastor at Centennial. Smith helped lead Sunday's remembrance. He reminded those gathered that Johnson's legacy will endure. He's still living because he's a piece of all of us, Smith said. Tributes pour in. When news of Johnson's passing spread Saturday, condolences poured out on social media. My heart is just breaking right now, knowing my friend <clears throat> my friend for 50 plus years has left us after a blessed life where he touched so, so many in a variety of ways, tweeted Kentucky sports writer Larry Vaught. We lost a giant of a man today, but his impact will live on in the countless lives he touched, tweeted former Mercy County football coach David Buchanan, now at Anderson County. Love you, coach. Thank you for how you loved us. Thank you for your example. To Mrs. Rosetta, Dennis, and Derek, thank you for sharing him with us. Alvis Johnson was the epitome of a good man and had a massive impact on high school sports, especially football in the Commonwealth. May he RIP, tweeted Herald Leader sports columnist Mark Story. Coach Johnson's legacy as a high school coach and the impact he made on his athletes was second to none tweeted former Danville football coach Clay Clevenger, now at Somerset. Prayers to Dennis, Derek, and his awesome wife, Ms. Rosetta. Alvis influenced so many lives in Kentucky, both students and adults. He was an inspiration to all, and he always worked to make life better for others, tweeted Cat's Paws founder Oscar Combs. R.I.P. Alvis, when it came to Kentucky high school football, you were absolute royalty, tweeted Dick Gabriel of Big Blue Insider. Funeral arrangements. Johnson is survived by his wife Rosetta, sons Derek and his wife Michelle, and Dennis and his wife Nyoka, and seven grandchildren. Visitation is scheduled from 7.01 a.m. to 1.01 p.m. Friday at Centennial Baptist Church, 291 West Lane, Harrodsburg. Sims Funeral Services is in charge of arrangements. Weather permitting, the funeral will be held at 2.01 p.m. Friday at Elvis Johnson Field, 371 East Lexington Street, Harrodsburg. In case of rain, the service would be moved to Harrodsburg Baptist Church. A burial service will follow at Maple Grove Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations are suggested to be made to the Centennial Baptist Church Building Fund, P.O. Box 177, Harrodsburg, Kentucky, 40330. This article is accompanied by photos. One shows attendees at a memorial service for former Harrodsburg High School football coach Alvis Johnson holding hands in prayer Sunday after many shared memories about the Kentucky coaching legend at Alvis Johnson Field in Harrodsburg. And another shows Coach Alvis Johnson um, on the field at Harrodsburg High School. Our next article from today's front page is entitled Rescuers Search for Missing Children in Pennsylvania Flash Flood from the Associated Press from Washington Crossing, Pennsylvania. Crews in suburban Philadelphia on Monday intensified the search for a missing nine-month-old boy and his two-year-old sister, swept away after weekend rain swelled the banks of a creek while they were driving to a barbecue with their family. Upper Makefield Township Fire Chief Tim Brewer said Monday the effort would be a massive undertaking 
and that 100 search crew and numerous drones would be looking for the siblings along the creek that drains into the Delaware River in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. The children are members of a Charleston, South Carolina family that was visiting relatives and friends when they got caught in a flash flood Saturday, Brewer said earlier. As they tried to escape the fierce floodwaters, Dad took his four-year-old son, while the mother and the grandmother grabbed the two additional children, he said. The father and son were miraculously able to get to safety. However, the grandmother, the mother, and the two children were swept away by the floodwaters, Brewer said. The mother was among those later found dead. The grandmother survived, Upper Makefield Police said in a social media post, but the mother of the two children died. Four other people died in the flooding, but it was unclear who they were. Victims' names have not been released. An already saturated northeast began drying out Monday after drenching rain over the weekend resulted in flash flooding in parts of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy declared a state of emergency Sunday and planned to tour damage early Monday in the northwest part of the state. A, tor- a confirmed tornado touched down Sunday morning in North Brookfield, Massachusetts, but no injuries or major property damage were reported. In New Hampshire, where some roads caved in several towns, heavy rain postponed Sunday's NASCAR race at the New Hampshire Motor Speedway by a day. Vermont reported no immediate safety threats following historic flooding nearly a week ago that dumped up to two months' worth of rain in two days. U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg planned to visit the state later Monday. More rain was in the forecast for Tuesday. Sunday's strong storms led to hundreds of flight cancellations at airports in the New York City area, and hundreds were delayed. New York Governor Kathy Hochul said five inches of rain fell within two hours in Suffolk County on Long Island. The state saw $50 million in damages from storms in the past week. In North Carolina, floodwaters were blamed for the death of a 49-year-old woman whose car was swept off a road in Alexander County late Saturday night. A man who was in the car with her was rescued. The deadly flash flooding in Pennsylvania called to mind the torrential rain that led to at least 25 deaths in New Jersey when the remnants of Ida passed through the state in 2021. People abandoned cars along washed-out roadways as muddy waters overtook driving lanes and flooded low-lying houses then. In 2018, in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, heavy rains brought up to 10 inches of water in a short time. No one died in that flooding. Our final article from today's front page is entitled, Russia Halts Deal That Allowed Ukraine to Export Grain, by Courtney Bonnell of the Associated Press, from London. Russia halted a breakthrough wartime deal Monday that allows grain to flow from Ukraine to countries in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, where hunger is a growing threat and high food prices have pushed more people into poverty. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said Russia would suspend the Black Sea Grain Initiative until its demands to get its own food and fertilizer to the world are met. While Russia has complained that restrictions on shipping and insurance have hampered its agricultural exports, it has shipped record amounts of wheat since last year. 
When the part of the Black Sea deal related to Russia is implemented, Russia will immediately return to the implementation of the deal, Peskov said. The suspension marks the end of an accord that the UN and Turkey brokered last summer to allow food to leave the Black Sea region after Russia's invasion of its neighbor worsened a global food crisis. The initiative is credited with helping lower soaring prices of wheat, vegetable oil, and other food commodities. Ukraine and Russia are both major global suppliers of wheat, barley, sunflower oil, and other affordable food products that developing nations rely on. The suspension of the deal sent wheat prices up about 3% in Chicago trading to $6.81 a bushel, still about half of what they were last year during last year's peaks, but fell later in the day. Analysts don't expect more than a temporary bump to global food commodity prices because places like Russia and Brazil have ratcheted up wheat and corn exports. But food insecurity worldwide is growing as developing countries also struggle with climate change, conflict, and economic crises. Finding suppliers outside Ukraine that are further away also could raise costs. The grain deal provided assurances that ships won't be attacked entering and leaving Ukrainian ports, while a separate agreement facilitated the movement of Russian food and fertilizer. While Western sanctions do not apply to Moscow's agricultural shipments, some companies may be wary of doing business with Russia. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said he wanted to keep the initiative going, even without Russia's safety assurances. We are not afraid, he said. We were approached by companies that own ships. They said that they are ready, if Ukraine gives it, and Turkey continues to let it through, then everyone is ready to continue supplying grain. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said the country's foreign minister would speak with his Russian counterpart Monday, and that he was hopeful the deal would be extended. The Black Sea Grain Initiative has allowed three Ukrainian ports to export 32.9 million metric tons of grain and other food to the world, according to the Joint Coordination Center in Istanbul. Russia has repeatedly complained that the deal largely benefits richer nations. JCC data shows that 57% of the grain from Ukraine went to developing nations, with the top destination being China, which received nearly a quarter of the food. The agreement was renewed for 60 days in May, but in recent months the amount of food shipped and number of vessels departing Ukraine have plunged, with Russia accused of preventing additional ships from participating. The war in Ukraine sent food commodity prices to record highs last year and contributed to a global food crisis. High costs for grain needed for food staples in places like Egypt, Lebanon, and Nigeria exacerbated economic challenges and help push millions more people into poverty or food insecurity. Rising food prices affect people in developing countries disproportionately because they spend more of their money on meals. Poor nations that depend on imported food priced in dollars also are spending more as their currencies weaken and they are forced to import more because of climate change. Under the deal, Prices for global food commodities like wheat and vegetable oil have fallen, but food was already expensive before the war in Ukraine, and the relief hasn't trickled down to kitchen tables.
Our next article from today's paper is entitled, Lexington Neighborhood Has Prayer Vigil for Park Shooting Victim, by Taylor Six. When Sarah Duncan heard gunshots come from Pine Meadows Park nearby her Lexington home, it was 2 p.m. on a Wednesday, and her two kids were home. Scared, Duncan called the police to report what she heard. That afternoon, police would discover the body of 16-year-old Christopher Valdez, who died from a gunshot wound near Tazewell Drive. Duncan admitted she was fearful and thought about never returning to the park that her kids play in, and she walks in. However, she prayed and felt differently. She and her neighbors needed to do something to change the frequency to a positive and make sure people felt welcome in the park and their neighborhood. Originally, I was very scared. Very scared, Duncan recalled. Then I prayed to God for safety for everyone here, and I wanted to do something positive in response to that. Sunday afternoon, Duncan, her family, city officials, Pine Meadows residents, and family members of Valdez gathered in the park for a prayer vigil to bring love and joy to their community. People were encouraged to draw uplifting messages with chalk. Jennifer Reynolds, council member for District 11, said she felt sad and burdened when she heard of Valdez's murder. All these things go through your mind about, what could we have done to prevent this? But there aren't answers many times, Reynolds said though I can assure you that I work with a ton of wonderful people who are trying to figure out how we can better reach the youth in our community and then respond. Pine Meadows resident Lamonte Nowlin said the murder was a terrible moment, but felt the tragedy should motivate people to help others and do more in their communities. This has touched so many people, and we need to stay motivated to do more, he said. Victim's sister. He was a good kid. Valdez's body was reported to officers by a nearby resident of Pine Meadows Park hours after the shooting happened, according to the Herald-Leader's news reporting partner, WKYT. Police said officers found Valdez while searching the area. Two other juveniles were injured in the shooting, according to police. One was taken to a hospital with a gunshot wound while the other later arrived at a hospital, also with a gunshot wound. Police have not released any suspect information. Valdez's sister, Carmen Garcia, said her brother was a good kid, and only God knows why this happened to him. There is a lot of people speaking bad about my brother, she said. It is just cheap talk from people that didn't know him. They are just words. But he left us an example. He left us a good legacy and his leaving hurts. Garcia asked for prayers to continue his legacy and asked for anyone who knew what happened to her brother to come forward and report information. Valdez was headed into his senior year at Lafayette High School, according to Fayette County Public School spokeswoman Lisa Defendall. Alberto Carrillo, pastor of the Bethel Spanish Church, said he knew Valdez for 15 years. Carrillo said Valdez was a hard worker and very faithful. We lost him, but we win by giving him to Christ, Carrillo said. The Lord knows what he was doing, and we need your prayers. Investigators are asking anyone with information about the case to call Lexington Police 
at 859-258-3600. Anonymous tips can be submitted to Bluegrass Crime Stoppers by calling 859-253-2020, online at bluegrasscrimestoppers.com, or through the P3 Tips app, available at p3tips.com. That's the letter P, the number 3, tips.com. The neighborhood will host a cookout cookout on August 5th at 5 p.m. Our next item is entitled, Human Remains Found Under Clay's Ferry Bridge, by Carla Ward. Human remains were found under the Clay's Ferry Bridge Saturday morning, Lexington police said. Lexington Police Lieutenant Daniel Truix said police were called at 9.59 a.m. The Fayette County Coroner's Office described the body as unidentified skeletal remains and said in a news release Saturday afternoon that the gender, age, and cause and manner of death remain under investigation. The remains were found by a man who was out searching for his friend, WKYT reported. The television station reported that Fayette County Coroner Gary Ginn told them officials think they know the identity of the person and police had been using helicopters and drones to search for a man in that area. One lane of southbound Interstate 75 was closed because of the investigation for about four hours Saturday, which resulted in traffic delays. Truick said the Lexington Fire Department also assisted at the scene. The bridge spans the Kentucky River at the Fayette-Madison County line. Next article is entitled, Police, Pedestrian Hit, Killed in Crash on Newtown Pike, by Janet Patton. One person was killed Sunday night in a one-vehicle accident in North Lexington, according to police. Police Lieutenant Joe Anderson said a pedestrian was hit by a vehicle on Newtown Pike, near Newtown Court, outside New Circle Road. The accident happened just after 11 p.m. It's unclear if the incident happened in the outbound or inbound lanes of Newtown Pike or in the intersection. Anderson said that the road was closed to traffic but reopened just before 2 a.m. Monday. He said the accident did not appear to be a hit and run. The person on foot was declared dead at the scene by the Fayette County Coroner's Office. The name of the pedestrian has not been released. Lexington police have not released any information about the driver or the vehicle. Collision reconstruction and forensic units are involved in the investigation, according to Anderson. It is now time to read the obituaries. We read only the name, age, and location if it is given. Betty Adams, 93, of West Liberty. Kathleen Bickett Cecil, 74, of Raywick. Bertha Quarter, 89, of Whitley City. Joseph David Coughlin, 98, of Lexington. Julia Crouch de Cognitz, 71, of Delray Beach. Virginia May Jenny Diles, 71, of Pine Top. Herman Hermie Hughes, Jr., 50, of Georgetown. William Albert Jibb, 89, of Cynthiana. Alvis Johnson, Jr., 76, of Harrodsburg. William Herndon Jones, 67, of Frankfurt. Wanda Lynn King, 
67 of Paint Lick. Twala E. Leftwich, 65 of Greensburg. Jesse Magai, 90 of Frankfurt. Jason Christopher McVeigh, 51 of Mount Sterling. Wanda Louise Conley Smith Owens, 86 of Mousy. Kimberly Patton, 59 of Liberty. Charlotte Phillips, 79 of Liberty. Reba Del Sebastian Keebler, 74 of Lancaster. Larry Stebbleton, 82 of Lexington. David Lane Stahl, 45 of Richmond. Margaret Rose Williams, 84 of Lexington. If you would like any further information about any of the obituaries today, please visit this site. It is at legacy.com slash obituaries slash Kentucky. Again, that site is legacy.com slash obituaries slash Kentucky. Also, you can now call us at our Radio I studios at 859-422-6390, and we will try to read them to you over the phone. Let's return to the news from today's paper. Our next article is entitled, This Invasive Fish Threatens Kentucky's Freshwater Mussels, Reel in a Reward by Catching One, by Aaron Mudd. In the early 1900s, Closer to a time when Kentucky was an unspoiled Eden, jewel-like freshwater mussels paved the beds of the streams and rivers that ran freely throughout the state. So prized were these mollusk shells, a lucrative clamming industry sprang up along the Mississippi River and its tributaries. From smelly camps on its banks, clamors fished out the creatures in hopes of uncovering a rare pearl. Most of the time, however, the mussel shells were forged into buttons and often shipped overseas to the sartorial shops of Europe. At its peak in 1916, the industry employed some 20,000 people in good-paying jobs and produced 40 million mussel shell buttons, thanks to the innovations of automation at the time, according to the Freshwater Mollusk Conservation Society. But... The boom couldn't last forever. Efforts were made by the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries to artificially propagate the critters, though never to corral the extreme overfishing by roving clamors who harvested freely. By 1930 and the beginnings of the Great Depression, the industry was on the brink of collapse. The Bureau of Fisheries urged the industry to take what it could before the mussel fishery on the Mississippi River is doomed to economic exhaustion. A century later, Kentucky's freshwater mussel species remain under threat. Of the 103 mussel species native to Kentucky, 20 have completely vanished from the state. Another 36 are considered rare or endangered, and 46 are on the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources list of species of greatest conservation need. Freshwater mussels play a critical role in the health of river and stream ecosystems, purifying their waters of silt and algae as it passes over them. Biologists use them as an indicator species. If you find a lot of good mussels in a stream or riverbed, 
You know it's healthy, says fish biologist Matthew Dolenbacher with Kentucky Fish and Wildlife. Today, freshwater mussels are under threat, mainly from habitat destruction and pollution, but also by invasive species. In Kentucky and other states, that includes the black carp. These opportunistic feeders from Eastern Asia were first introduced in the U.S. in the 1970s via privately owned aquaculture ponds to control snails. However, they've since made a jailbreak. Black carp can now be found in the hundreds throughout the Mississippi River Basin, though fortunately only a few have been discovered in western Kentucky, according to Dolenbacher. Large populations of invasive carp, though not black carp, have been found in Kentucky and Barkley Lakes in western Kentucky. They are also found in most backwater lakes in the region associated with the Ohio and Mississippi rivers, according to Kentucky Fish and Wildlife. It's relatively rare for private fishers to catch one, but you may be able to get a bounty if you happen to reel one in. Here's what to know about the black carp, including tips for identifying them and why they're a problem for native mussels. How to distinguish between a black and grass carp. Black carp and grass carp can look very similar, and both are invasive species in North America. There isn't one easy way to distinguish them based on physical characteristics. But according to the Invasive Carp Regional Coordinating Committee, there are several subtle differences you can spot. Adult black carp have narrower heads. Compared to black carp, a grass carp will have a rounder, more torpedo-like head. Black carp, conversely, have a sharper, narrower head, much like an arrowhead. The grass carp has a fuller upper lip. When looking at a grass carp from above while its mouth is closed, you should be able to see its upper lip, which protrudes more than a black carp's. However, young black carp may also have a protruding upper lip, so this tip is only helpful for identifying adults. Look at the carp's lateral line or back shape. A black carp's lateral line or general silhouette will appear straighter, while the grass carp's back has more of a curve. A black carp's coloration has been described as black, blue, gray, or dark brown. The fins are particularly pigmented, and the black carp generally has longer pectoral fins than the grass carp. On the other hand, the grass carp often presents an olive color color with dusky fins. Still, color is not always a reliable indicator. Why is a black carp a problem in the Mississippi River Basin? There are four non-native carp species in Kentucky, and all can disrupt native ecosystems. What can make the black carp a particular problem, however, is it's the only one of the four that eats mussels and snails, and it can grow to more than 100 pounds in size. According to Dolenbacher, the fish biologist, black carp are also capable of moving into brackish waters, where fresh river water meets the salty water of the ocean. Black carp crack open hard-shelled mollusks with their molar-like teeth, and they don't seem to be very picky about what they eat. From an ecological standpoint, black carp have the potential to radically disrupt benthic zones of waterways by preying on algae-eating mollusks. If algae is allowed to grow unchecked, it can deplete oxygen levels in the water, 
further stressing these underwater ecosystems. Black carp can grow to be 5 feet long, weigh upwards of 150 pounds, and live as long as 15 years. That size comes with an enormous appetite, and because of this, black carp can snap up food that would have gone to native turtles, other fish, birds, including waterfowl, and mammals such as raccoons, otters, and muskrats. They are also known to transmit diseases and parasites to native species. All of this adds additional strain to the ecosystem. A bounty to catch black carp. Depending on where you caught your black carp, you may be eligible for reimbursement. Starting in 2021, black carp caught in watersheds upstream of Cairo, Illinois, including all of Illinois waters and the Missouri, Ohio, Tennessee, Cumberland, and Mississippi rivers may qualify. Reimbursements are limited to 10 awards per person per month, however. A handout from the Invasive Carp Regional Coordinating Committee says rewards are subject to funding availability. If you do happen to catch a black carp, the U.S. Geological Survey and several other government agencies recommend following what they call the Keep Cool Call Approach. Those who are sure they've caught a black carp should be sure not to throw it back into the river or creek that they've caught it from. Instead, get some paper and write down as much information as you can. Fishers should make a note of where they caught the fish, preferably with the exact coordinates, and take some photos of its head and mouth, along with a measurement of its length. Also, make a note of what kind of fishing gear and bait you used, and, if possible, other details like substrate type, depth, water temperature, and flow. Fishers are next advised to, quote, humanely kill the fish and keep it cool on ice. Keeping a live black carp is illegal, and you should not freeze it unless necessary, according to a handout from the Invasive Carp Regional Coordinating Committee. Finally, you call. For Kentucky, that means calling the state's Fish and Wildlife Resources Agency at 270-226-4192. You can also email your report to Jessica Morris at jessica.morris at ky.gov. That's J-E-S-S-I-C-A dot M-O-R-R-I-S at ky.gov. This article is accompanied by a photo of a USGS scientist holding a black carp collected from the Mississippi River near St. Louis. Now let's turn to the opinion page of today's edition, where our first editorial is entitled On Biden Border Policy, Critics on Both Sides Are Wrong. This is a Washington Post editorial. Uncontrolled migration across the U.S.-Mexico border is not in anyone's interest except, perhaps, for the smugglers who profit by charging people to make the difficult and dangerous trek. After much hesitation, during which unauthorized attempted border crossings reached an all-time high of 2.76 million in fiscal 2022, the Biden administration acted to stem the flow and redirect it into lawful, more manageable channels. Initial data from the Department of Homeland Security show progress. Daily Border Patrol encounters with migrants fell from 10,000-plus just before May 11th when the policy went into effect to 3,400 in early June. 
set forth in regulations finalized May 10th, the plan seems to be preventing the border chaos many had feared would follow expiration of emergency powers under Title 42, a public health law that had allowed federal authorities to expel migrants summarily during the pandemic. There's a catch, though. Biden's policy has to be consistent with federal law, and critics from both ends of the political spectrum have gone to federal court arguing that it's not. On July 19th, a judge in Oakland, California, will hear a coalition of immigrants' rights advocates headed by the American Civil Liberties Union who claim, in effect, that the Biden plan unlawfully truncates the right to asylum. Meanwhile, red states, headed by Texas, accuse the administration of the opposite, letting in hundreds of thousands of migrants without sufficient legal authority. The court should let the administration's approach, which includes a two-year time limit, run its course. Some of the legal arguments against it are serious. Yet, so is the Biden administration's case that the president is trying to address a major problem through a pragmatic exercise of his existing authority. Essentially, the new policy offers migrants incentives and disincentives, carrots and sticks, the net effect of which is to discourage irregular border crossing. The disincentive, framed as, quote, rebuttable presumption against entry, is swift expulsion and a five-year bar on re-entry for those who cross between ports of entry without first seeking asylum in a third country and route. The incentive is that these tough conditions do not apply to migrants who first make appointments using a cell phone app to apply for asylum at ports of entry and wait in Mexico for their turn. The rule contemplates advanced processing for asylum in a third country as well. Separately, it offers 30,000 people per month from Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, and Haiti, the main sources of the 2022 border surge, direct access to the United States via two-year humanitarian parole, provided they have a U.S. sponsor. The ACLU-led suit, however, characterizes Biden's policy as a replay of President Donald Trump's pre-COVID attempt to impose a flat ban on asylum for border crossers who transited a third country, which federal courts on the West Coast had blocked, calling it a violation of a 1980 statute providing, quote, any alien physically present in the United States, end quote, with a right to seek asylum. The Biden administration differentiates its plan, citing the fact that migrants may rebut the presumption that they should be denied entry, and that the new system provides alternative pathways to legal entry. A June 6 DHS statement noted that the app had enabled over 1,000 asylum seekers a day since May 12 to present themselves at ports of entry. The gist of the Republican-led state's objections is that both the app and the use of humanitarian parole to admit migrants from Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Haiti create new visa programs without congressional authorization. The Biden administration argues that there is still case-by-case consideration of each applicant for parole and that the program, program fits the law's requirement that humanitarian parole provide significant, quote, public benefit, in this case, steering migrants away from the border. The Biden administration is trying to salvage the asylum system's core objectives, 
not subvert them, via a program that is balanced and time-limited. It acknowledges, as a DHS statement recently put it, that a permanent fix will require Congress, in a bipartisan way, to address our broken immigration and asylum system. Meanwhile, judges should not make the job harder than it already is. Again, this was a Washington Post editorial. Our next editorial is entitled, Rooting Out Fraud at Federal COVID-19 Relief. This is an editorial from the Virginian Pilot and Daily Press. Three years after the deadly pandemic brought the United States to a screeching halt, shutting down businesses, industries, government offices, schools, and much of daily life as we had known it, memories of how terrible those days were had begun to fade a little. Before politicians and the general public become too outraged over reports of the staggering amount of fraud in federal COVID-19 relief programs, we should remember the enormous need in those dark months when businesses were in danger of closing for good and people thrown out of work were scrambling to take care of themselves and their families. Yes, recent reports that billions of dollars in federal COVID-19 funds were stolen or misspent are shocking and appalling. A recent report from the Associated Press says that fraudsters may have stolen more than $280 billion in COVID relief aid, while as much as another $123 billion was wasted or used wrongly. Those losses together come to about 10% of the $4.2 trillion in COVID relief aid the federal government doled out. There's a, about another trillion dollars in aid yet to be paid. Sadly, it's not surprising that some people would take advantage of a devastating pandemic that killed more than 1.13 million Americans, put enormous pressure on hospitals and medical workers, and stressed our economy almost to the breaking point. Some were hardened criminals and gangsters. However, others just saw an opportunity and thought it was okay to game the system. Unscrupulous crooks use the Social Security numbers of dead people and federal prisoners to get unemployment checks. Fraudsters collected benefits in more than one state. People whose business ventures and finances were in good shape got money intended to keep struggling mom-and-pop shops from folding. In Washington, more investigations are underway, and politicians are arguing about what went wrong and who's to blame. Investigations and accountability are vitally important. Already, the government has charged more than 2,230 defendants with crimes related to pandemic fraud. Every effort should be made to punish people who profited from the pandemic and to recover fraudulently obtained money. The continuing investigations, criminal charges, convictions, and recovered monies should get as much attention as the shocking scope of the fraud. It's also important to learn the right lessons from what happened. Some mistakes were inevitable. This $5.3 trillion federal rescue package was unprecedented in size, and the necessary haste made things tougher. The agencies responsible for distributing funds, including the Small Business Administration, the Internal Revenue Service, and state unemployment agencies were unprepared and understaffed. 
The situation was likely made worse by the Trump administration's early attempts in 2020 to downplay the pandemic and then to put the burden of dealing with it on the states. When the situation became dire, the administration hastily set up three large pandemic relief programs and began pumping money out. The biggest danger is that, as we are disgusted by the enormity of the fraud and waste, we will lose sight of how urgent the need was and how the aid programs shored up the economy and saved desperate people. If wary Americans refuse to step up with relief programs when some future emergency demands them, that would be the greatest damage the thieves and fraudsters have done. Again, this was an editorial from the Virginian Pilot and Daily Press. And our final opinion piece from today's opinion page is entitled, Will the IRS Direct File Program Widen the, Rach the Racial Wealth Gap? This is by Benjamin Chavez, Jr. of the Chicago Tribune. The Internal Revenue Service recently announced that it will begin a pilot program during the 2024 tax season to start preparing and filing Americans' taxes in-house, relieving them of the need to use an accountant or tax preparation software, such as TurboTax. We have heard considerable discussion about artificial intelligence and its use in society. I applaud the American Civil Liberties Union, the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, Upturn, and the two dozen partner organizations that are calling on the Biden administration to take concrete steps to address the systemic racial harms of these technologies. Given that several Democratic members of Congress are already concerned about the IRS widening the racial wealth gap, it's fair to ask if the agency's new direct file program will exacerbate this serious concern. Just one day before the IRS announced its pilot program, its commissioner, Daniel Warfel, acknowledged racial disparities in the agency's audit process. In a letter to members of the U.S. Senate, he stated that, while there is a need for further research, our initial findings support the conclusion that black taxpayers may be audited at higher rates than would be expected given their share of the population. This news is far from shocking given that a January Stanford University study found that the IRS audits black taxpayers three to five times the rate of non-black taxpayers. Yet, Less than 24 hours after the IRS acknowledged the racial disparities in its audit process, it released its direct file pilot program, which may increase racial income inequality, exacerbating the racial inequalities the IRS currently faces. Direct file advocates such as Code for America, a nonprofit focused on improving government services, say that it will ensure more people of color receive the tax credits they deserve. However, a July 2020 report by the Progressive Policy Institute, a public policy think tank, warned that an IRS direct file system could fail to identify many of the Americans who qualify for the Earned Income Tax Credit, or EITC, the tax credit that supplements the wages of low to moderate income families. That's especially concerning for the African-American community because the Brookings Institute found that this tax credit, 
which 21% of black women receive per year, reduces racial income inequality by roughly 5% to 10% annually. While tax preparers and tax preparation services typically ask a series of questions to determine whether their clients qualify for the EITC, the IRS, which has traditionally only been a tax collector, won't, which may cause thousands of working families to overpay. The few taxpayers who would notice errors in the IRS-issued tax liability statements would find themselves relying on the communications department of an agency that, based on reports, appears to conduct a discriminatory audit process, one that picks up a mere 11% of the phone calls it receives to correct the problem. That's an unfair position that no one should have to face. According to a 2017 United Kingdom government report, the UK, which operates a tax system similar to direct file, regularly issues tax estimation errors due to the country not having enough information on file. This problem has gotten so severe that one-third of British taxpayers now opt to self-assess their tax liabilities rather than use the tax agency's, quote, simplified system because they perceive it to be working against rather than for their interests. What reason do we have to believe the direct file system here would operate any better? Black Americans already face a $220 billion annual wage gap due to myriad systemic inequalities in the private and public sectors. The last thing they need is for the IRS to accentuate this gap at a time when the agency is already in Congress's crosshairs for governing inequitably. Now is not the time for the IRS to create more barriers. Now is the time for Congress to review, question, and reform the agency so that it begins working effectively for all of America, not just the privileged few. Again, this was an opinion piece by Benjamin Chavez Jr., who is a former NAACP president and is now president and CEO of the National Newspaper Publishers Association and executive producer and host of the PBS show, The Chavez Chronicles. This concludes the reading of the Lexington Herald Leader for today, Tuesday, July 18th, 2023. Your reader has been Cindy Fraser with Bill Sally on the Master Controls. Thank you for listening. And now, please stay tuned for sports news right here on Radio I.